Welcome back, everybody, as we continue and actually conclude our annual Torah cycle with the last Torah portion of Deuteronomy. It's called Vizot Habracha. Uh, many times this Torah portion gets skipped because it's not read on the Sabbath. It's read on Simchat Torah. Uh, let me explain. This week is the week of Chag Sukkot, the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. It's a seven-day feast, but in Leviticus, it tells us on the eighth day of the feast, you're to have uh, a sacred assembly. This eighth day is called Shemini Atzeret, the eighth assembly. But then the day after that is the day of Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing with the Torah and in synagogues around the world next Wednesday on Simchat Torah. They'll be taking the Torah scrolls out of the ark, and they'll be dancing with them, maybe doing a parade around the synagogue, and they'll be taking the Torah scroll up to the bima, and all the men in the congregation, including young boys below bar mitzvah age, will come up and everyone will get to read a part of the portion. And the portion they will read on Simchat Torah is Vazot Habraka. Azot means this, vazot means and this, and baraka, of course, means blessing. So vazot baraka is found in Deuteronomy 33 and 34, and it starts with the words vazot baraka, and this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, bestowed upon the children of Israel before his death. And it's an amazing portion, and um, it, I, I always learn so much every year as I prepare a teaching on this. And this year is going to be a little different from past years as I see new things and dig a little deeper into the passage. So without further ado, let's get into uh, our Torah portion. The image up here, of course, any of you who are involved in Sukkot and celebrating it, you recognize this. And what you have here on the right is a citron, or it's also called an etrog, Usually they're yellow, sometimes they're green like this one. And then over here you see bundled together um, some willow branches, some branches from a myrtle tree, and then a long palm frond up the middle. They're bundled together. Together these are called the four species, and they are described in Leviticus 23. We'll look at that a little bit later. But during the week of Sukkot, these are held together as uh, you pray the morning prayers. And in fact, I have a set here. And here you can see the three species of my willow branches are starting to uh, dry up and, and fall off already. And then I have an etrog here. And mine happens to be a bright yellow color. So we'll be talking about this in a moment and how it ties in to our Torah portion. Now, this Torah portion needs to be studied alongside Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, we see Jacob on his deathbed. And here in, Mo, in Deuteronomy 33, we see Moses on the last day of his life. Though he's standing, he's not ill. He's very healthy, very strong, but it's the last day of his life. And in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his 12 sons. Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 33, we see Moses, the teacher, blessing the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's important to take these two chapters, the blessings of Jacob and the blessings of Moses, and, and align them, put them side by side, and they produce a menorah pattern, and you get a fuller picture of what befalls the tribes of Israel in the last days, and also the, the makeup, the character, the nature of these 12 tribes. Now, Jacob's blessings occur in birth order, starting with Reuben and going right on down. But Moses' blessings don't seem to make any sense. They're completely jumbled. And he does begin with Reuben, but that's about where the, the similarities begin and end. And the uh, great rabbi Ramban, the rabbi uh, Nachmanides, he suggests that this is the order of conquest as they go into the land under Joshua, possibly. But Jacob's blessings end with the word vazot and this, and Moses' blessings begin with the word vazot. 
And you'll see at the end of Jacob's blessings, it's in Genesis 49, verse 28. As the moment he's done pronouncing these, this prophetic word over his 12 sons, it says in verse 28, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, Vazot, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So Jacob ends with Vazot, Moses begins with Vazot. Now, we're going to be spending the, the lion's share of our time on this uh, graphic here, if you want to call it that, where Moses seems to pair the tribes, Reuben and Judah, Levi and Simeon, Benjamin and Joseph, Zebulun and Issachar, Gad and Dan, Naphtali, Naphtali and Asher. And you may want to pause the teaching right now and go to the notes section. I don't think I've done a teaching yet that has more notes than this one. And uh, I have a full page of notes here, and you'll find all the verses from Jacob's prophecy and his blessings over his 12 sons included in the notes section. But I've also prepared a little chart here that may not show up too well on the screen, but you may want to have this printed out as we go through. Um, This shows the order of birth of Jacob's 12 sons. Now, his son's births are grouped together in five clusters, so to speak. And this is how it works. You recall that Jacob was madly in love with Rachel, and he worked for seven years for her father, Laban. And uh, when the seven years were up, he married Rachel, or at least he thought it was Rachel. And when he went into the tent, uh, it turned out that Laban had switched brides. And instead of Rachel, he woke up in the morning with her sister, her older sister, Leah. So Leah was the first one to give birth, and she gave birth to four sons, not all at the same time, but she gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So this is the first cluster of sons that we find listed together. Second is that Rachel decided, oh, I'm going to do what uh, Jacob's grandmother Sarah did. When Sarah could not bear children, she gave her handmaid Hagar to her husband Abraham, and Abraham had children through her because Rachel simply couldn't have kids. She was just infertile. She she just couldn't get pregnant. So I put in green here because green represents Rachel and her handmaid Bilhah. Red is Leah and her handmaid Zilpah. So Rachel gives her handmaid Bilhah to Jacob, and Bilhah gives birth to Dan and then Naphtali. Well, Leah, who's quit bearing children, decides, well, I can do this as well. So she takes her handmaid, Zilpah, and gives Zilpah to Jacob, and Jacob has two more sons, Gad and Asher. And then something happens, and Leah finds that she can once again get pregnant. And so... Over here in group D, Leah has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And finally, after these ten sons are born, poor Rachel finally gets pregnant, and she gives birth to Joseph and then to his younger brother, Benjamin. And if you recall the story, she died giving birth to Benjamin. Um, And Benjamin was the only one of Jacob's 12 sons who was born in the land of Israel. And they were in Bethlehem at the time, just right outside the edge of town. And that is where Rachel's grave is today. You can go visit it if you ever go to Israel. So you uh, might want to print that out and stay familiar with that as we go through this. So let me get back to where we left off. Now you're going to notice that I have four names underlined here. You see Reuben is underlined because he's the firstborn of Leah. And Joseph is underlined because he is the firstborn of Rachel. And then Dan and Gad are the firstborn of the two handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah. So we have four firstborns here. 
So let's get right into the, the portion. And I grouped these together in pairs because as I was reading, it seemed like that's how they're presented to me. And I think it will make sense as we go through, and I hope you will um, be blessed by some of the insights that will come out of this pairing. So in verse 1, and this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, the Ish Elohim, is the, uh, the first time, in fact, it's the only time in the Torah that a man is called this. And this is Moses, the man of God, bestowed upon the children of Israel before his death. He said, Adonai came from Sinai having shown forth to them from Seir, having appeared from Mount Paran, and then approached with some of the holy myriads. From his right hand, he presented the Eshdat, Eshdat, the fiery law. <clears throat> it's not the word Torah, it's the word Dat, which means law, fiery law to them. And this word, Eshdat, is one word in Hebrew. It's, and the translators don't quite know what to make of this. Because Aish is fire, dot is law, but it's put together as one word, one four-letter word, Aish dot. And the only way to translate it is fiery law. And it's like, what is God trying to teach us through this unique and odd pairing of two words and sticking them together like this? Um, I think one of the things he's trying to teach us is that the Torah, God's law, is fire. And we need to be very careful with it because we can burn ourselves and we can damage others as well if we mishandle this fiery law. And you have probably been around long enough like me that you have seen this damage happen when people misapply the Word of God. On the other hand, if it's handled properly, it is something that brings warmth and life and strength and protection and blessing and light into people's lives. So we need to be very cautious how we handle this fiery law because it is fire. And if we're careless with it, if we're unwise with with it and mishandle it, we can cause a lot of damage to ourselves and to others as well. Or on the other hand, we can bring incredible blessing to ourselves and others as well. In verse 3, Indeed you loved, now your translation may say the people, or it may say the tribes, but let me give you the correct translation. It's amim. Am is people. Amim is peoples. And every place the word peoples is used, it's about a dozen times in the Torah, it's always referring to the nations, to the Gentiles. But for some reason, in this instance, both Jewish and Gentile translators want to make it the tribes. And the context, to a degree, would justify that. But I think God had a much wider audience for his Torah than just the Jewish people. He gave it to the Jewish people as their inheritance, but it wasn't so they could keep it to themselves, but they could share it and be a light to the world. So I think here the best translation is the peoples. Indeed, you love the peoples greatly. All its holy ones were in your hand. The holy ones are are the people of Israel, the chosen people. He loved all the peoples, but the holy ones were in his hand, singular. For they planted themselves at your feet, bearing the yoke of your utterances. The Torah that Moses commanded us is the heritage of the congregation of Jacob. He, Moses, became king over Yeshurun when the leaders of the nation gathered the tribes of Israel in unity, may Reuben live and not die, and may his men be included in the count. Now, I didn't leave a break between verse 5 and verse 6. And the reason I didn't leave a break there, but I went from 5 and ran right on into 6, is because in each of these blessings, there is a space of about four or five letters in the Torah scroll between the end of one blessing and the beginning of the next. But when it comes to Reuben, there's no break. Verse 5 goes right into 6. Then after the words concerning Reuben, then there's that break. And then it starts the blessing concerning Judah. Why isn't there a break there? And why this very cryptic, may Reuben live and not die, and may his men be included in the count, 
it, it makes it sound like Ruben's hanging on by his fingernails. It, it, it sounds very precarious. I just hope he doesn't die, is all, all I ask. That's the best I can hope for from Reuben, is what it sounds like. Well, the end of verse 5 is talking about the unity of the tribes of Israel. The last three words of verse 5 are Yachad Shavti Yisrael. Yachad, the unity. Yachad means one, Yachad means unity. Shivte means the tribes of Yisrael. May Reuben live and not die. Why is he saying this? Well, poor old Reuben. It seems like he was always getting tangled up in his own feet. And uh, though he was Jacob's firstborn and Jacob had great hopes for Reuben, Reuben just always messed up. Think Sihon and Og. Reuben lived his life according to his own human reasoning and because he loved comfort. And if you recall, when um, Israel prepared to go across the Jordan River and into their inheritance, it was Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, who came to Moses and said, you know what, we've got a lot of cattle. And this land here on the east of the Jordan is a great area for cattle. Uh, Can we just take our inheritance here? Do we really have to cross over there and take the inheritance that God promised, an inheritance we haven't even seen yet, the land that flows with milk and honey? Can we just take ours here instead? And as you know, back in Numbers, I think it's chapter um, 23 or around there, Moses got hopping mad. He got so angry with them. I think Moses was afraid that this is the kind of behavior that caused us to delay the entrance 40 years. And if we're not careful, we're going to have to delay it another 40 years. And he's, I'm already 120 years old. I don't want to wait till I'm 160 to go in. So, um, but, but then Reuben said, no, 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 don't worry. Um, we'll go in and help them conquer the land. We'll go in and fight. But once the land's settled, we just want to come back here and have our inheritance on this side. And Moses, you know, there's no compulsion in spirituality. There's no, uh, um, you can't make people be spiritual. And so he gave in. Okay, you help the rest of us conquer the land, then you can have your inheritance here. And as you know, Gad joined him in this. And we'll get to that in a moment. And then the tribe of Manasseh was torn in half, and half of the tribe of Manasseh also took their inheritance on the wrong side of the Jordan. As a result of this, Reuben and Gad were the first ones to be taken into captivity. They didn't last long over there. And so it's as if Moses looking down to the end of time, or at least into the not-too-distant future, and saying, oh, I just hope Reuben lives and he doesn't die, and that his men are included in the count. But it wasn't long, and they were gone. When Jacob pronounced his utterances over his 12 sons back in Genesis 49, he refers to Reuben and says, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. This is about the story where Reuben, being a young man, he let his passions get out of control, and he went up and he slept with Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, and, uh, who was one of Jacob's wives. And as a result of that, he lost the birthright. So Reuben, who should have enjoyed the birthright of the 12 sons, being the firstborn, He lost it, and that birthright passed instead to Judah. And this is, I believe, why Judah and Reuben are paired, because the birthright was replaced. It went from Reuben, and instead of going to Levi and Simeon, who are numbers two and three in line, it went to the fourthborn to Judah. And as you know, the kings of Israel come from Judah, and Messiah comes from Judah. Judah is an amazing tribe. And 
It says in verse 7, and this to Judah, and he said, hearken Adonai, Shema Adonai, hear, O Lord, to Judah's voice and bring him to his people. May his hands fight his grievance and may you be a helper against his enemies. And when Jacob pronounces his blessings over Judah, he, they're much longer. And he calls Judah a lion's cub. And this is where we get the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes to him. And Shiloh is always understood as the Messiah. And so Jacob is prophesying that the Messiah will descend from the tribe of Judah. So Judah, the fourthborn, becomes the firstborn. This is why the kings of Israel come from Judah. Now, there's an interesting passage over in 1 Chronicles, I believe it is. And it says there, yes, 1 Chronicles 5.1. It says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Joseph, the son of Israel. So that he, Reuben, is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Now, why is it that in Chronicles it says that the birthright is passed to Joseph, but it's obvious that the birthright actually goes to Judah, from whom the kings come? Well, do you notice here that it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, Messiah, comes? The scepter is that staff that would be held by the king. And kings throughout time, and you think of pictures of British kings or, and queens, they hold this scepter, and it's gold and bejeweled. And, but it represents a staff, like a club, because it represents the fact that the king, the queen, is the shepherd of the people. And the staff was used to bang on the heads of the sheep. It was used as a sign of authority, and it was used to control the sheep. And we know that in, um, in Revelation, it talks about how Messiah will come. He'll rule with a rod of iron. I mean, he's really going to enforce the law and keep things in line. So the scepter is, represents what the king does. It's in his hand. It represents his authority and control. But when we read about the prophecy concerning Joseph, it talks about the crown that is on Joseph's head. And a king wears a crown. The staff is what he does, but the crown is who he is. It's something above. It's something higher than the staff. The crown isn't held in the hand. The crown is worn on the head, the top, the highest part of the person. And what is going on here with this thing with Joseph and with Judah? The scepter is in the hand of Judah, but the crown is on the head of Joseph. What does this mean? Well, most of you may know that the rabbis predicted two messiahs, two messiahs, because they couldn't reconcile all the prophecies about the coming messiah. They saw two categories of prophecies. They saw prophecies about a messiah who would come, who would have victory over the enemies, who would make Israel, the king of the nations, the head of the nations, and he would rule over a kingdom of peace, and he would enforce the Torah, and there'd be peace and prosperity in the land. He'd be victorious, conquering king. But they also saw prophecies about a Messiah who would come and be unrecognized by his brothers, rejected by his brothers, who would live among the Gentiles, who would be despised and rejected of men. And they just didn't know how to reconcile these two kinds of prophecies. Every prophecy about the Messiah can go in one category or the other. So they thought, well, maybe there are two Messiahs. So they called the one Messiah, Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, David, the conquering king from the tribe of Judah. But you know what they called the other Messiah? They called him Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph. Because Joseph was such a one who was rejected by his brothers and later is not recognized by them, who lived among the Gentiles, but who raised, was raised to great prominence. 
And so what we know today is that there are not two messiahs. There's one messiah who comes at two different times. He came first, the first time, as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph. Isn't it interesting that his adoptive father, Mary's husband, was named Joseph? So when he was here, he was known as Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph. But when he returns, he returns as the ben David, the son of David, coming in to conquer and have victory and establish the kingship. And um, another interesting thing is that the rabbis did agree that the Messiah, son of Joseph, had to come before Messiah, son of David. And so we're waiting for a Messiah to return. And this also helps explain a very cryptic prophecy that's found over in Ezekiel 37. In verse 16, God is speaking to Ezekiel, says, Son of man, take a stick and write it. On it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says Adonai Elohim, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah. Make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. The immediate application of that prophecy is that the people in the north and the south, Ephraim and Judah, would be united into one people again. But there's a deeper prophecy here. It's saying that Judah and Joseph, Messiah, son of David, Messiah, son of Joseph, they go together, they're one. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing that God is revealing to us in this, this cryptic uh, and amazing prophecy. So, let's move on. We go on to verse 8, back in Deuteronomy 33, verse 8. Of Levi, he said, your Tumim and your Urim befit your devout one, whom you tested at Massah, and whom you challenged at the waters of Meribah. Now, this is a new insight into the story. Remember, at Massah and Meribah is where... The people complained, and um, they didn't have water, and God had Moses speak to the rock, and water came out. And the people were saying, is God with us or not? But we discover here that the tribe of Levi did not participate in that complaining. And uh, Moses makes note of that here. And then it goes on and says, The one who said of his father and mother, I have not favored him. His brothers he did not give recognition. His children he did not know. For they, the Levites, have observed your word and your covenant they preserved. What this is referring to is when the sin of the golden calf took place later on. And the people of Israel were involved in this this horrible uh, idol worship while Moses delayed up on Mount Sinai. The tribe of Levi did not participate in that sin either. And so when Moses came down, he saw the Levites there standing away from this golden calf and all the nonsense going on with it. And uh, he told them to strap on your swords and go through the camp and kill the ones who are involved in the, the sinful degradation in this golden calf worship. And so Levi did. As a result of that, Levi got promoted to the priestly tribe, and that's why they became the priest of Israel. I want you to notice something in the next verse. You see four special blessings that are set aside to Levi, and I think there's a principle here for us. If we are faithful to stand when other people are compromising and falling, if we are faithful to fear the name of God, to fear God and to recognize him and be loyal to him, I think these four blessings come to us as well. In verse 10, it says, They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your Torah to Israel. In other words, you will be a person who God will use to proclaim his word to others. Then it says, number two, They shall place incense before your presence and burnt offerings on your altar. They will have access to God's throne. They will have a closeness with God in prayer. Sin separates us from God. 
But when we stand faithful to God, when we fear God and love God, we will have special access to him. And our prayers will mean uh, so much more because the prayers of a righteous man avail much. And then third, in verse 11, Bless, O Adonai, his resources and favor the work of his hands. You'll have blessing, fruitfulness, and when you work, it'll bear fruit. And then number four, smash the loins of his foes and his enemies that they may not rise. God will destroy your enemies. He will take vengeance against them. Because people who fear God and are faithful to him are especially beloved by him. And he gives special protection to them. Now, Levi and Simeon were brothers. And I call them partners in anger, partners in rage. But Simeon is not mentioned in this chapter. He doesn't appear. This is extremely unusual. Now, you have to understand a little something about the story of Levi and Simeon. If you go back to Genesis 34, you read the story of how Jacob, after leaving his father-in-law Laban and taking his his family into the land, they, uh, they go up to the area of Shechem. And his daughter, Dina, went out to kind of explore, and the, um, the prince of the land, the, the mayor's son, so to speak, sees her, and he rapes her. And then he wants to marry her. So he rapes her, falls in love with her, and then wants to marry her. It's a little bit backwards. And um, so the, the leader of Shechem comes to Jacob and says, my son, whose name was Shechem, wants to marry your daughter, Dina. So let's, let's sit her marry. And um, the sons say, well, listen, you know, he, our, daughter can't, our sister can't marry an uncircumcised person. So if you get circumcised in all your people, uh, then we can do it. So they all agree, and the men all circumcise themselves. And on the third day, when they're especially sore, Levi and Simeon go into the city and they slay all the men. They take out their swords and they kill them all. This is what Jacob said about that on his deathbed. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And sure enough, Levi and Simeon did not receive an inheritance in Israel. They were scattered. But there's a difference between these two partners in anger. Simeon never got control of his anger. And it brought destruction to this tribe. Levi did get control of it. And as a result, he was elevated to the priestly tribe. His bloodthirstiness was applied to being a priest who brought sacrifices. It was turned to a constructive purpose. And they were scattered through Israel. Levi received Levitical cities throughout the land of Israel. Simeon was scattered through Judah's inheritance. So the Simeonites had cities in the area of Judah. Uh, I remember Judah, the, the kingly tribe, the one who is now elevated to firstborn status. It's as if God thought, Simeon needs to be watched. And so I've got Judah to sit on him and keep him under control. And so Simeon did not get an inheritance. He just lived in the land of Judah and Judah's uh, inheritance. But Levi was elevated to these priestly cities, these Levitical cities throughout the land of Israel. The question is, why is it, or how is it, that Levi was able to conquer his anger? How was he able to get control of it? And I think the answer is found in... In Malachi, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, listen to what it says about the tribe of Levi. My covenant with the Levites was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Listen to this. It was a covenant of fear 
a covenant of fear. Think about that. It was a covenant of fear. Fear of what? And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. If you were a person who's given to anger, there's two possible outcomes. You can be a simian. You lose your inheritance. You lose blessing. You, you, everything's frustrating to you because anger is always there to sabotage your good intentions. But if you develop a wholesome and healthy and strong fear of God, as Levi did, then that anger can be conquered, brought under control. And this is the difference between these two brothers, Levi and Simeon. And then we have Benjamin and Joseph. So we pick it up in verse 12 of Benjamin. He said, may Adonai's beloved, I love that, Adonai's beloved dwell securely by him. He hovers over him all day long and rests between his shoulders. What does this mean? And when Jacob prophesied over Benjamin, he said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. (laughs) What is this supposed to mean? Well, you have to understand that Benjamin's territory is where the temple was located. The temple was located in Benjamin's territory. Here's a graphic to give you a little bit of insight in how this worked. If, um, if you were to take a drone in ancient times and go up and look down the temple mount, you would see the temple over to the west and the Mount of Olives way over to the east. And uh, you continue to, to home in and look at the altar. You would see the altar here. And the temple, the doors of the temple, be right over there to the left, to the west. But this is what the interesting thing is, is that the border of Judah's territory and the border of Benjamin's territory met at the altar. And the altar was in Benjamin's territory, so we could put these hatch marks across here as well, because this, the altar belonged to Benjamin. Everything to the east and the south of the altar was in Judah's territory, but the altar and everything north and west of it was in Benjamin's territory, including the temple itself. So no wonder Moses is prophesying and says, May Adonai's beloved dwell securely by him. The temple is God's house, and it's in Benjamin's territory. God's house is in Uh, Benjamin's yard. (laughs) It's on his plot. He hovers over him all day long and rests between his shoulders. But what's this about Benjamin being a wolf? Well, it's a a play on words. The Hebrew word for wolf is zev. But the Hebrew word for sacrifices is zevak. You hear the the similarity? Zev, wolf, zevak, sacrifice. And the altar is like a wolf that's eating sheep all day. It's a ravenous wolf. And so God has this brilliant play on words. Now, normally wolves are enemies of the people. They want to come and eat the sheep and destroy the flock. But here the wolf is turned to something positive. And uh, so Benjamin is the zave who feeds on the zevakim, the sacrifices. So let's go on back here. Benjamin and Joseph. Now, these were Rachel's two sons. And when you think about it, if Laban hadn't switched brides on Jacob, it would have been Leah who he slept with and who gave birth first. It would have been Rachel. He probably would never have married Leah or taken the two concubines. And if Jacob had had Rachel first and Rachel only, Who would have been the firstborn son of Jacob? It would have been Joseph. Joseph. So we see Joseph as almost the spiritual firstborn and Reuben, the physical firstborn, but whose status passed on to Judah. I'm not going to take time to read and comment, at least, on on the prophecy over Joseph. It's quite long compared to the others, and the same is true with Jacob's prophecy over Joseph. It's so rich and lush and 
because Joseph was just the most incredible of these 12 sons. It, it just an incredible, incredible person. He was the savior of the world at that time when he was in, in Egypt and he, uh, he saved the Egyptians and the Jewish people and so many lands and peoples from, from starvation. And what an amazing picture of Yeshua Joseph is. So just for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip over. You can read it for yourself. You can pause and read it on your own and, and read Jacob's prophecy over Joseph. But let's go on to Zebulun and Issachar. These are very short, and they're always grouped together. And this is what it says, verse 18. Oh, by the way, I have to make this one comment, verse 17. You may be wondering, where are Ephraim and Manasseh here? Because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob promoted them to tribes of Israel. And it's interesting what God says here, or what Moses says there. He, uh, he refers to Ephraim and Manasseh as the horns on the ox. Joseph is the ox. The ox has two horns, and Joseph's two horns are Ephraim and Manasseh. Just an interesting visual there. All right, Zebulun and Issachar. Verse 18, of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, O Zebulun, in your excursions, and Issachar in your tents. The peoples will assemble at the mount. There they will slaughter offerings of righteousness, for by the riches of the sea they will be nourished, and by the treasures concealed in the sand. The symbol for Zebulun's tribe was a sailing ship, and the symbol for Issachar's tribe was a tent. And when, um, when Jacob blessed Zebulun and Issachar, he said this, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good, that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. And Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Zebulun and Issachar, we are told through, by Jewish history, they entered into a pact with one another. Zebulun, were, this tribe, they were great merchants. Their land was near the sea, and they were merchants. They sailed, they traded, and they became extremely wealthy. But Issachar, they put their shoulder to force labor, but it's labor in the word of God, labor in the Torah, labor in understanding God's word and in teaching it. And this is what God gifted to them at. So Zebulun and Issachar entered into a pact. And Zebulun said, we will support you so you can study Torah. And we'll do it because we're going to invest in being merchants. And so they received the blessings of Issachar. And Issachar received the material blessings of Zebulun. There's an interesting little insight here. If you look at the word Issachar, it comes from the word Sakar, which means reward. And as far as I know, I think I've read this before, I, I can't recall any other place where there's any word in the Hebrew that has two letter shins next to each other. This is where we get the two S's of Issachar. Shin, shin. Issachar is spelled Yud, Shin, Shin. And then it's, uh, I think it's Kof and then Resh. I believe that's correct. And, um, and so where else do you, do you find this? That's correct. These two sheens. Well, since the word for reward, Sachar, begins with sheen, the rabbis tell us, well, there's a double reward here. There's two sheens. Double reward. One reward goes to Issachar, but the other reward goes to Zebulun. And they were the beneficiaries of Issachar's labor in the word. And Issachar was the beneficiary of Zebulun's uh, business savvy. And then we come to Gad and Dan. I couldn't decide whether to call them partners in war, because they are both great warrior tribes, or call them dissatisfied brothers. And I settled on this. Dissatisfied brothers. They were both firstborns, one of Zilpah, the handmaid of Leah, and the other of uh, Bilhah, the, the handmaid 
of Rachel. And what's interesting is that Dan and Naphtali were brothers. These were sons of Bilhah. And then Asher and Gad were brothers. They were the sons of Zilpah. But Dan and Gad were firstborns of their respective mothers. And they were never satisfied. The one hero we see coming from Dan is, is Samson. And when you read in the book of Judges about Samson, if you recall, Samson fell in love with a Philistine woman. And his parents said, can't you find a woman here, a daughter of your brother, somebody, a Jewish, a good Jewish girl? Do you have to go, me- go marry a Philistine? And of course, God used this, but Samson just wasn't satisfied with anybody, with any of the girls from Israel. Dan received an inheritance over near the west part of Israel, but he was dissatisfied with it. And he decided, I want my inheritance up north. And so he went up and conquered way up in the north in the Bashan. And it's beautiful. Fresh water, springs, forests. It's a beautiful, there's a national park there. It is a, a gorgeous place to visit. But Dan was the first tribe to fall into gross idolatry, become Baal worshipers. His dissatisfaction led to all kinds of things. Gad, you remember, joined up with Reuben. He didn't want his inheritance in the land. Remember Reuben and Gad, a half-tribe of Manasseh, they settled on the wrong side of the Jordan, dissatisfied. But they were great warriors. But I think dissatisfied people usually do like to fight. I think most of the conflict I've had in my life is because I was not satisfied with my lot. And I decided I need to go fight for what I want or think I deserve. If we could only learn to be at peace with what God gives us. Just to be obedient, to trust his heart, that he loves us more and knows best what is good for us. To follow his will, to accept our portion, then we're content. But Gad and Dan, it was never good enough. Naphtali Naphtali and Asher, I call them the blessed ones. And we'll go to them. I'm looking at the clock, and I don't want to go over time. And so we'll just skip right on. Uh, Of Naphtali, he said, Naphtali satiated with favor and filled with Adonai's blessing. Go possess the sea and its south. Of Asher, he said, the most blessed of children is Asher. He shall be pleasing to his brothers and dip his feet in oil. And that's referring to olive oil because Asher's land and uh, Naphtali's land were very long. They were from north to south, and they were right next to each other, and they bordered the sea. It's a very, very rich area filled with olive trees. And the land of Naphtali and Asher were considered to have the most beautiful women in Israel. And if you could marry a girl from these tribes, you were considered very blessed because they were uh, said to look young, even into old age. Eh, Maybe, maybe not. But what's interesting is that uh, it's believed that all of Yeshua's disciples, except for Judas, who came from the area of Judah in the south, that all of them came from the tribe of Naphtali, or maybe Naphtali and Asher. Because this is the area of the Galilee where Yeshua lived and called his disciples. So uh, how blessed is that? You just don't get more blessed than that. You know, as we look at this, this portion where you see these such dissimilar personalities, uh, we tend to think of the people of Israel as this, this, this united whole as if they're all gelled together and, um, and they were very cohesive. Uh, they weren't. These 12 sons were so distinct in their personalities and, and how they handled their own issues. And one of the things I love about the television series, The Chosen, which is... Uh, and I encourage you all to watch it. It's wonderful. They have two seasons done, and I think there are going to be five more. 
Um, it's the life of Yeshua, and, but especially his disciples. And it, one of the things that's striking about it is that it, the producers really did their homework. And they looked at the hints that are given to us in the Gospels and Acts um, to really pull out the differences in personalities of these apostles. And in the chosen, you see them button heads with each other. The personalities are very distinct, very different. And that Yeshua could tell, take these men and cause them to cohere to one another and become brothers who truly loved one another. And Yeshua could say to them, by this all men will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. You know, if they're all alike and they didn't have these differences and conflicts, then their love for one another would be no big thing. But they had conflicts. They were very different. Uh, uh, quite an age range from Peter, the oldest, to, to John, who is just a kid. And um, the jealousies and the, and the different little things that ha- took place with them, there are hints of these in the Gospels. But again, the, the producers of The Chosen did their homework. And when you see this and you think to the end of the story how they became one. And after they became one, then Yeshua sent them out. And they scattered and they took the good news of Yeshua out to the world. And then there's us. And I don't care what faith community you're in. You've got people there you just don't get along with well. But you love them anyway. You have people there whose personalities are so different from your own that if you allowed yourself, there'd be constant fighting and bickering. And, you know, at Beth Takun, we have such, I, I love to brag on, on, on my congregation, not mine's his, but this wonderful group of people who are listening to this, you guys are the best. And I've often said, you have no business being in the same room together. But you love each other. You take care of each other. And you see one another's faults, but you cover them with love. And you get along. And, you, and when there's a need, you're all there to help take care of that need. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to behold. And we have people from all races and backgrounds and and uh, social strata, and uh, nationalities, and to see you as a, almost like a, a slice of the kingdom of God. This is what one visitor said. It's like a slice of the kingdom of God. All these different peoples with these different differences, and they're one. I remember the early days of Beth Takun, a Jewish lady came and visited. She spent an hour or so with us, and during the Oneg time, she says, you have quite a mishpacha here, mishpacha, a family. And, uh, and even in the early days, we were very different from one another, but she could see it. And it really spoke to her that we were a family. So it's only appropriate that we discuss and read this portion during this time of year, the time of Sukkot. So I'm going to take the last 10 minutes and go through this, and it won't take long, but I hope you'll be blessed by it, because there's some wonderful insights here. In Leviticus 23, which goes through the Moedim, we come to verse 39, which starts the section concerning Sukkot. And this goes on, I forget to what verse, but it starts in verse 39. On the 15th day of the seventh month, the month of Tishrei, which is the month we're in right now, When you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of Adonai seven days. So those are the seven days of Sukkot. Okay? On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day, so there's that mysterious eighth day. It's supposed to be a seven-day feast, but on the eighth day, Shemini, eighth, Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day where you come together, it says, shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, that is what we call the etrog. And this is traditionally the fruit that is taken. And then branches of palm trees. And you can see here in the middle, this is a palm frond, and it's got some wraps around it so it doesn't just fall open. Boughs of leafy trees, 
And there it's specifically referring to the myrtle. And these are the myrtle branches here. And willows of the brook. And these are willow branches here. So it says, then you shall rejoice before Adonai your God seven days. So what happens is that during these seven days, except on the Sabbath, when a man prays in the morning, he will take the etrog in his left hand, and he'll take these three in his right hand and put them together. And as he begins to pray, he rotates the etrog up like this. So notice something very interesting about the etrog. It's got two stems, one at either end. This stem at this end, the green one, is the one that actually attached to the branch of the tree. This is where the physical sustenance of the tree came and fed the etrog. But this stem here is not really a stem. It's called the pitum. And it looks like it should connect to something. It looks just like a stem, but it connects to nothing. And one of the things that is traditionally taught about this and why it's held in the left hand is because it's about the size and the weight of a human heart. And you know your heart has two stems. There's a physical one. The heart is what keeps me alive physically and needs to be fed and nourished physically. And, but it also connects to something else. It connects to something invisible, something spiritual. And when we pray, we have the physical on top, but when we get started, we rotate it around to where the spiritual is above. This side of my heart connects to above, and this side of my heart connects to below. Is your heart connected to both? Is your heart connected to your family? Is it connected to the works God has for you to do in this world? It can only work if it's getting a flow from above as receiving nourishment that is spiritual from the invisible realm. So that is, that represents the heart. The palm, on the other hand, represents the spine. It should be straight and strong. This represents your strength and your works. The myrtle, that's this one here, you'll notice that leaves are shaped like eyes. If you look at the photograph here, you can see the myrtle leaves. Oops. The myrtle leaves are shaped like eyes. And this means taking control of your eyes. What are you looking at? Because if you allow your eyes to stray, that can certainly pull you in the wrong direction. But the willow leaves, on the other hand, are shaped like lips. Shaped like lips. And if we can keep our mouth under control that we've really conquered. It's, it's greater than a person who conquers a city if you can control your lips. And so when we take these in the right hand and the etrog in the left, and we bring them together. It represents our hearts, our strength, our lips and our eyes being brought into unity, brought into control with two hands, with strength, with purpose, and we pray. And when we pray with these, we, we shake them and towards the north and the south and then towards the east, towards the west, and then up and down. And it's a picture of many things, and I'll let you study that out on your own, but it means we, we apply our lips and eyes and strength and our hearts to what is before us and what is past and what is spiritual, and what is physical, our relationship with God and with people, and in all things to be united and to, and to apply ourselves fully out of fear and love of God to the things he's given us to do. There's something else that's, that the rabbis have noticed. The willow has no taste and no scent. The myrtle has no taste, but it does have a very fragrant scent to it. The palm has no scent, but this is palm frond from a date palm, and the dates are very sweet and delicious, so it has a wonderful taste. But the edrog has this wonderful citrusy smell, but also you can cut it up, use it on salad, you can make jelly out of it, and it's delicious. It's got 
taste and scent both. So what does this mean? Well, the rabbis say that there are four types of people. The willow has no scent, no taste. This represents people who have lack of Torah and no good deeds. No good deeds, they don't study Torah, don't do anything. The myrtle has scent and no taste. This represents good deeds, but no, no study, no Torah study. The palm has taste, but no scent. This means they study the Torah, but they don't have good deeds. But the edrog has taste and scent. This means, this represents that they have Torah and good deeds. So, shouldn't we just throw out the, uh, the willow since it doesn't have either? And then again, maybe the myrtle and palm, should be, we should be a little skeptical of them because they don't have both. Well, there's this beautiful um, saying in the Midrash Rabbah. It says, what has God to do with them? Because you have some things here have everything and some have nothing, some have some and not others. What has God to do with them? To destroy them is unthinkable. Rather, God says, bind them together in one bond and they will atone for each other. And so here you see a picture of a man holding the four species' hand as he prays at the Western Wall. It reminds me of the, the recipe for incense that is given in the Torah. And you find it um, over in Exodus 30. Verses 34 and 35, Adonai said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stakte and onkia, onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And many of you know where I'm going with this. There's that one ingredient in the middle called galbanum. All the other ingredients smell wonderful. But Bolgadam stinks. It smells horrible. And so the question is, why is that mixed in? Why is this galbanum, this putrid smelling stuff, part of the incense formula, an equal part with all the others? And the reason is, is that when it's mixed and ground together with all the other ingredients, it enhances the fragrance of all the others. And this is why in every faith community, every Bible study group, every home group, I don't care where it is, there's the blessing of Galbanum. There'll be an individual who just doesn't, isn't all that pleasant by themselves. But if we respond correctly, this individual will bring out the best in the rest of us. Um, one person I met called them EGRs, extra grace required. And um, God knows that when Yeshua was here, he was surrounded by people of Galbanum. But how gracious he was to them. And that's how we need to be. Loving, gracious, and embracing. Doesn't mean we embrace a wolf. Doesn't mean we embrace someone who's, who's truly damaging. But we do embrace those who may not be quite as sweet as we think we, we are ourselves. I'm going to close with this. Robin handed this to me this morning. I thought, i got to copy that and share it. It's a story by Rabbi Raphael of Barshad. And he, he says, when I get to heaven, they'll ask me, why didn't you learn more Torah? And I'll tell them I wasn't bright enough. Then they'll ask me, well, why didn't you do more kind deeds for others? Now I'll tell them that I was physically weak. Then they'll ask me, well, why didn't you give more charity? Now I'll tell them that I didn't have enough money for that. And then they'll ask me, if you were so stupid, weak, and poor, why were you so arrogant? And for that, I won't have an answer. We all seem <laughs> to have a, a, a supply of pride and ego and arrogance, don't we? But what is it based on? I don't know. So here are your study questions. In a faith community, when is a click a bad thing? A click, uh, maybe some of you in foreign countries don't have this term. A click means a little group of people. With a, uh, within a large group, there's a little group kind of always sticks together. A click. When is a click a bad thing? When is a click, uh, when is a, click a good thing? Let's get rid of that. I don't know how that word got in there. A good thing. 
apologies. Among the 12 disciples, did Yeshua have a click? Think about that one. Discuss how Levi was able to channel his anger. What lessons can we learn from this tribe? Discuss the four species. What lessons and insights stood out to you? And you can go back and talk about this more. I went over them very quickly. Deuteronomy 33, 8-11 describes Moses' blessing over Levi. What are the four particular promises that God made to Levi? I went over them quickly. I want you to go back over there and review those and think about them. And why did God make these four promises to Levi? What was the thing about Levi that elicited these four special blessings? And share how God has used unpleasant people in your life to refine you and grow you spiritually. Please don't name names. (laughs) And please uh, be gracious as you do this so it builds up and doesn't tear down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing and wonderful passage. We only got to look at one chapter of it and didn't even get to look at the chapter 34. But Father, I just hope and pray that the words have been shared would stir our hearts to love you more, to to have a proper and holy and righteous fear of you, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be echad with you, to be echad with one another. And Father, help us to quit condemning one another and judging one another. For we know as we judge others, that's how you're going to judge us. So Father, give us a heart of grace and forgiveness, gentleness, and again, love for our brothers and sisters. And make us the people you want us to be. The people this world needs to see and needs us to be. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.